My name is Zach. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. I want to welcome you to church this morning. It is a joy just to get to be with the people of God, in the presence of God, singing the praises of God. And I love that line in the song that we sang, that it's our joy to thank Jesus, just to thank him for who he is, for getting to serve him. We just want to be a thankful people. We've been learning about God's faithfulness as a community over the last several weeks. We've been studying through the gospel of Luke. We're going to continue in that theme today, leading us up to this coming Sunday, which is Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is a significant day in the life of the church where we celebrate uh, again and even in a unique and focused way the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to invite you to be a part of that and not only for you to be a part of it, but for you to think about who might God use you to bring in to get to experience the new life that we have in Christ. As you leave the service today, you're going to be given a couple invitations for our service next week. And I really want to encourage you this week, you never know the power of an invitation. And I want to encourage you this week to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as you go about your week for people that the Spirit might prompt you. You need to invite this person to come, right? Our job is to sow seeds. It's God who really works in people's hearts, but we want to sow seeds. So would you pray with me for a moment, uh, just that God would lead us this week and that we'd be open and available to see who he'd want us to share this good news with. Jesus, we love you. God, and we thank you that you have a heart for every person in our city, that you're not building a selective little country club of a few people who have the inside track, Lord, but your heart is for the whole world and your grace is big enough for the whole world, Lord, and that whosoever uh, would want to come, may come, Lord. And so I pray this week as we go at school, uh, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, at our gym, uh, wherever we may be, wherever we may be this week, Lord, that you would lead us and you would prompt us by your spirit of just who you would like for us to invite to come and to experience your life. You know, the power of an invitation can change a life, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So you get a couple of those on the way out. Really excited about that. We're gonna be in Luke chapter nine today. Um, if you will open your Bibles and go there, we're gonna be in verse nine, chapter nine, verse 43 through 45. Uh, one of the things that you'll notice is if you don't have a Bible, if you look in the seat in front of you or just to the right or left, you'll notice this week uh, there are racks under there with Bibles. Whoa, I know, I know, I know. Yes, there you go. Steve Hill, thank you. Uh, so if you need a Bible and you don't have one this morning, you can use that. If you don't have one at all, you can take that with you as our gift to you. But we love the Word of God. The scriptures are the inspired word of God, and we want to learn uh, about Jesus from his word. So I encourage you just as we go that you're looking on in your own Bible, studying this for yourself to let it really go deep within you. Luke chapter 9, verse 43 to 45 and 51 to 56. Starting in verse 43, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they, the disciples, did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. They were afraid to ask him about it. And then in verse 51, as the time approached 
for him being Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I want to point out to you in verse 43, or verse 44, rather, a little phrase uh, that is really important to notice. Verse 44, it says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. We've been studying through the gospel of Luke. We're in chapter nine, almost finished with that. And I've, I've seen Jesus do a lot of things. We've seen him do a lot of things in the gospels, teach, heal, deliver, amazing stuff. This is the first time that he has said, I want you to uh, <clears throat> listen carefully. He's talked about the value of listening, but right here he's giving them a specific instruction to his disciples. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. I want to share this verse with you in a couple of different translations because I think it helps us understand or see uh, the meaning here. He said, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Remember, the son of man is Jesus' favorite term to describe himself, this divine king from God come to rule And yet the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus wants those words to sink deep into your ears. Treasure and ponder each of these next words. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into human hands. Last one, this is a little bit old school. Put ye these words in your hearts, for it is to come that man's son be betrayed into the hands of men. Of men. And so you see that the phrase, let it sink into your ears, treasure this, ponder this, put these words in your hearts. Jesus is saying something significant that there's an ability for us to know, but not to know. There's an ability for us to see, but not really to see. And he's telling his disciples, he's like, I want you guys to pay attention to this. Let it sink deep into your hearts. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. The title of today's message is Let This Sink Deep. Let This Sink Deep. If you look in verse uh, 51, we see kind of a further building on what's going to happen. And Jesus, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is the place that he is going to be captured, that he is going to be tried, that he is going to be crucified, and he is going to be raised from the dead. Jerusalem is the climax that the gospel of Luke is building to, the events that happen there. And here we see that Jesus, who's been ministering in Galilee, is now turning and he's setting his face toward the very place where he is going to be crucified. Jesus is choosing to go to Jerusalem. The crucifixion was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. It was not, whoops, what happens now? No, Jesus was choosing to go to Jerusalem. And this is connected to this idea of letting it sink deep. Uh, Scholars would say that this passage that we're reading now is a hinge for the gospel of Luke. The first nine or so chapters were introduced to the king, Jesus. 
And from chapter 9 to chapter 19, which we'll study all the way through, we're going to see Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And the attention is building, and the energy is building, and the tension is building as he heads toward Jerusalem, and there is where the, these events happen, these significant events happen in his life. But for the next 10 chapters, Luke wants us to see that they all take place with the backdrop that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, that he's going to the cross, that the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. Jesus wants these words to sink deep within us. In fact, you could say that that idea and this drama that's building is the, the filter through which the gospel of Luke is to be understood, is to be interpreted, is to be distilled. Every event that we read, we're to read knowing that Jesus is headed toward the cross. And that's to shape our understanding of the gospel and even to shape our understanding of the Christian life. And to help bring this home, I want to talk to you a little bit about coffee. Any coffee lovers in the house? Yes, our church loves coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker, so I'm speaking as an outsider here. But I'm, I know, boomy, boomy, throw tomatoes. Uh, my wife is a coffee aficionado. And so as we've been married, I've learned about coffee. My parents coffee drinkers. I just never like the taste. And I know you find that hard to believe. You might consider me heretical, but that is what it is. I like iced tea. There you go. Uh, so my parents, they would make coffee every morning before work. As a kid, I'm watching this and I'd watch them put that paper filter into their coffee maker. Anybody ever made one, made coffee with a paper filter? You get the store? Yes, we got a few. And, uh, and what I noticed though, is sometimes they'd be out of the filters they wouldn't recognize it till the morning thereof, but they needed the coffee, and so they would improvise. And they would go and get a paper towel and use a paper towel as the filter. Anybody use the paper towel filter method? You can put your hand up. You can be bold. We got a few. We got a few coffee lovers that are that intense, right? Um, when, I, when I met my wife and we got married, I saw that she would make the coffee with the filter you know, that you buy in a store, but over time, she graduated and developed, and this Christmas, I learned about um, this, this device for making coffee, I think it's uh, make pour overs, right? And I heard that when you make coffee this way, that it's like releasing the nectar of the gods. So this is how coffee should really be appreciated. And uh, so I was like, man, I need to get my wife uh, this, this thing. And I learned in the first service, this is called a Chemex, although ours is the Target brand, the off brand. So it's maybe just called I don't know, a pour over, right? But that's what we got. So I got it to her, I got it for her for Christmas, and then I watched her how she makes coffee, right? And you take the beans uh, and you grind them up and you put them in here and then you put this on the, 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 the glass and you take the boiling water, the really hot water. I, sh I know there's a certain temperature you're trying to get it to, but not beyond that temperature. It's just one that's just right. And you pour it in there slowly a little bit, let it sit, take a minute so that the, so that the grinds can open up right? You let it sit. And then you come back. You're, you're impressed with my coffee knowledge. Oh, there you go. And then you come back and you pour it and it drips through. And then you drink this pour over. Uh, that's why it's called a pour over because you're pouring over. But what I want to talk to you about is the, the filter here. The filter, right? The filter, whether it's the paper towel or the purchase kind of paper product or this metal uh, kind of filter, and even the, the, the transparency or lack thereof of the filter, dramatically and drastically influences the flavors of the coffee. 
They influence what is distilled from the coffee. What I find interesting is that the filter doesn't just apply to coffee, but we all have filters for our lives. I learned this in history class uh, in college, we were studying, and the, the professor told me, I'd never known this before. Maybe you guys, this was obvious to you. It wasn't obvious to me in high school, but in college, they told me, they said, hey, every history textbook, every history kind of novel or nonfiction uh, a book is written with a filter. That people, people like you and me, come to a series of events, and based on our filter, we interpret the meaning of those events differently. So if someone that was a, the writer of a history book was a communist by persuasion, then they would interpret a certain series of events through the filter of communism is good. And that would flavor what they wrote, what they understood the meaning of these events to be. And if someone was more of a capitalist in persuasion, they would take the same events. This is amazing. The same events, but their filter, it would interpret it in an entirely different way. And so you had to realize what's the filter of the person who's writing the material. That was interesting. We see this in the news all the time. Like if President Trump ate a bagel this morning for breakfast, on Fox News, it would be the greatest act of heroism ever done by a president in our history. And on CNN, it would be the most diabolical scheme by, by Trump to take down some industry and we should outlaw bagels, right? Same event, very different filter to interpret the event. I realize I'm dramatizing it, but just a little bit. Like it's pretty close to, <laughs> pretty close to true, right? It's a different filter. I learned that with athletes, there are filters that athletes have. Uh, there was a study done at Stanford University about world-class athletes. And they were trying to learn what is the difference between someone who's a very good athlete and someone who makes it to the Olympics, like a world-class athlete. They studied them. They were like, is it genetics? Is it nutrition? Is it coaching, training? All of those things, and those are important. But they found a very interesting uh, differentiator. It was their mindset. The world-class athletes, the ones who made it to the Olympics, had a filter by which they interpreted the events of, of life with what they called a growth mindset. So what this means would be a basketball game, the game is on the line, I have a free throw to win the game, and I miss that free throw. Lose the game. My team's out of the tournament, it's over. An athlete with a growth mindset would say, this is an opportunity for me to learn from. This failure is something that I can learn from and I can become the type of player that when their free throws to be made at the end of the game always comes through. I can learn, I can grow, I can work on it. That's why it's called a growth mindset. That was the mindset of those who made the Olympics. The mindset of those who just rose to being very good athletes was what was called a fixed mindset. The filter they used was if I miss that same free throw that cost my team the game, I'm just the type of player that misses free throws that lose games. That's who I am, that's what I'm supposed to be, and I'm never going to overcome that. That is what I am, right? That was a fixed mindset. So now you can see the very different kind of outcomes that people have in life based on their filter. We all have a filter. I wonder if you are aware of your filter or if I'm fully aware of my filter, the thing that I use or you use to distill the meaning of events of our lives and to shape us.
In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is pointing toward the cross. Jesus is speaking about the cross, and he's saying, let this sink deep. Because Jesus wants for you and for me that the primary filter of our lives would be the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that means. Most of us base our filters off our experiences. Are my circumstances going well? Is this working out? That flavors how I look at everything. Or we base our filter off our feelings. Do I feel this? Do I feel good? Does this feel right? Does this feel like something I should do? Does this relationship feel good? And our feelings are the filter that we use for our lives. And as we come to Jesus, he's trying to give us something much better than using the filter of our lives being our experiences or our feelings. He's trying, let, he's trying to teach us that the good news of our lives is the good news of Jesus Christ, that that's the deepest filter that we're to see and understand life through. My hope today as we talk about this, that you and I would both grow in awareness of maybe some of our natural filters and some of the ways God and his mercy and his kindness would be challenging us and teaching us and encouraging us to let go of some paper towel filters, to let go of some kind of, you know, Folgers coffee filter type deals and embrace his filter, the filter, the meaning the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' disciples did not get this at that time. But if you read their writings and you look at their lives after the resurrection, these events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, not their circumstances, not their feelings, though the events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus became the filter by which they saw life and lived life from. So let's look into, well, what, why is this so significant? Why is it so significant that Jesus went to the cross? What is the big deal about this? I think growing up as a child and even as a young man, if you had asked me, uh, what's the meaning of the cross? I don't know what I would have told you. I grew up here in Texas. I had some uh, familiarity with Christianity at a level, but I probably would have told you, I think it's that we're supposed to like forgive one another and Jesus kind of gave us a good example. And while that is true, there's so much more to what the cross means. And it's going to be very diff difficult for you and I to let it sink deep within us if we don't understand why this is so meaningful. Yeah. And honestly, I could preach every Sunday for the rest of my life on the meaning of the cross and not exhaust all the topics that would be covered. But today, for the sake of time, what I want to focus in on is one particular meaning of why Jesus went to the cross, why he chose to go to Jerusalem, why he sets out in that direction. And we see that in Romans chapter five, verse eight. This is the apostle Paul, a man that was a leader in the early church who spent much time reflecting on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And here we see in these words of scripture, the Holy Spirit moving through him and revealing. This is why this is so significant. One of the many reasons, but a very important one. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that I feel great all the time, that my circumstances are great all the time. No, no, no. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we're to understand one of the meanings, one of the reasons why Jesus is saying, let this sink deep. Why Jesus is choosing Jerusalem. 
why he's choosing to go there is that this is going to be a demonstration of God's love for you and for me. In Jesus dying on the cross, it was a demonstration. He was motivated by love. He was motivated. Here the scripture tells us by love for you and for me that we're to look at the cross and we're to see, wow, this is a demonstration of God's very own love for me and for you and for humanity. When we let the filter of the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus be the filter of our lives, we begin to see life through a new lens. We begin to live life defined by the love of Christ for us. The love of Christ as expressed in the cross and in the resurrection. And this will transform your life. This will forever change the way you view God, the way you view yourself, the way you view your relationships, the way you view your future. If you will, let this sink deep. Most people, again, if you were to ask them, well, how do you know that God loves you? Most of us would say something based on either an experience we had or how we feel at any given particular time. And what I want to challenge you is, as good as those things are, those are not the bedrock of our faith. The bedrock of our faith is not our experiences. It's not our feelings. The bedrock of our faith is the cross. And so the way that we walk in confidence consistently, knowing that God loves us, is we let this sink deep within us. That on the cross, God demonstrated his love for us. I love this verse in John chapter 1. Jeremy referenced it during the worship time. Uh, It expounds on this idea of God's love for us, and it speaks to one particular concept within the New Testament that's used over and over again to communicate what God has done for us and how he has demonstrated his love for us. John chapter 1, verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, meaning receive Jesus, receive him as king, receive his love, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. So to receive him, if you're wondering how to do that, is simply to believe in his name, to believe in him. He gave, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. So when we come to know Christ, when we come to receive his love, we're adopted into God's family. And we begin to live from this identity as a son or a daughter of the king, that we have a loving heavenly father who has adopted us and brought us into God's forever family. That's what's true about you if you are in Christ. This is why we say over and over again, we want to be sons and daughters who encounter Jesus because we want all of us to be reminded to live from that reality and from that place of God's love and our adoption. Sinclair Ferguson tells us how this connects to the crucifixion and the resurrection. He said, we are adopted into God's family through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, in which you paid all our obligations to sin, the law, and the devil, in whose family we once live, but our old status lies in his tomb, and a new status is ours through his resurrection. You are a son. You are a daughter if you are in Christ. You've been adopted into God's family. And it's when we let this be our filter, right, that we begin to see the world very, very differently. And because I'm hoping that this sinks deep within you, I want to walk you through some of those differences as we let the truth of the cross become the filter of our lives. What happens as we grow in this idea 
of being adopted as God's children. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a chart. Uh, I, I actually referenced it in the first service, saying I got it from a pastor named John Tyson, who I really like. If you, so there was John Tyson fans in the first service. But then I learned this is actually a chart from somewhere else. So I can point you to the full resource at another time. But for right now, let's contrast orphan heart versus sons and daughters, okay? So the first thing that I want to point out to you is when you live from that place of being an orphan, meaning you don't let your adoption as a child of God become your primary filter for life, and you live from that place of, I'm an orphan, I'm on my own, it's up to me to just figure things out and get by, you view God as your master. And you can be in the faith, you can believe in Jesus, you can be a part of the church, right? But your view of God is that he is your master, your taskmaster that just gives you things to do. But if you let the revelation of God's love through the cross sink deep and you live in the place of a son or daughter, your image of God changes and you begin to see him as your good heavenly father. And yes, we are called to obey him, but we obey him out of his deep love for us and our honor for him. And this changes how you approach God. This changes how you think about God. And as you're, how you think about God has changed. I've told you this many times, what you believe about God is the most important thing in your life because it affects so many other things that come out of your life, right? And we wanna let it sink deep that our vision of God and our image of God changes and is transformed by the cross, that we primarily see him as our good heavenly father and we leave behind the orphan way of just seeing him as a task master. You understand how different that would make you if you lived from that place. It would fundamentally change you. It would also fundamentally change your identity. And I realize as I go through these, I've been meditating on them all week, and I realize there's certain ones that I feel like I have a good hold on, can always grow, but it's like, okay, I've got that. But then there are other ones that I come to that I'm like, oh my goodness, I've not let this truth sink deep in this place. So as we go through, there might be some that you're like, got that, and then others that you're like, ooh, I need to take that and chew on it a bit. So identity, an orphan heart says uh, it's based on self-rejection that comes from comparison, right? Our identity is built, the way we view ourselves is built on how we compare to everyone around us. So if you struggle in here with comparison, I do. If you struggle in here with comparison, so helpful to realize when I'm struggling with that, it's because I'm living from the wrong place. I'm not letting my adoption sink deep, okay? And if you let adoption sink deep, you live, your identity is defined. The defining thing about who you are is that you are loved and affirmed by your father, by your heavenly father. And this is more than just an intellectual understanding, but it's, we let it sink deep enough into us that it changes our emotional chemistry and it changes our spirits and we begin to live from a very different place. Your theology changes. With an orphan spirit, you, you approach theology, the study of God, looking at everything through the love of the law. It's all about the rules. It's all about the regulations. Let me put things in order and put people in order and get everything worked out. And that's how you view God and everything else. But when you live from that place of being an adopted son or daughter, you live, your theology is shaped by the law of love. You realize that the defining thing about your life is the love of God. And the defining thing about God's kingdom is God's love for people. And you begin to see life through that lens. And it sinks a little deeper. And it sinks a little deeper. Approval. 
With an orphan heart, you strive for approval and recognition from others. You want to do well, perform well, and you want other people to realize that. And that's how you get your sense of approval. I was watching the the documentary Free Solo. I know Donnie mentioned it a few weeks ago. And the gentleman in there talks about how he grew up in a home where no one ever touched him and no one ever said they loved him. And it was just very, very cold. As I said, I realized I'm kind of operating out of that. And where my girlfriend, her meaning of life is happiness. My meaning of life is performance. The meaning of my life is defined by how I can perform and if I can climb this particular mountain and have this documentary made about me so everyone else can see it, right? It's the classic example, striving for approval and recognition from others. And, and it, I don't know the guy's name. What's the guy's name? Alex. Alex, if you find this and listen to this, I want you to know there's more for you than a life of performance. God loves you. We live from the, when we think about approval, when we live from adoption, we are accepted by his love and his grace. We're accepted by his love and his grace. And so we don't need as much the recognition of others or we're not shaken as much by whether we're approved or disapproved by others because we have a firm place to stand. Is this speaking to anybody yet? Yeah. If it's not, I want to encourage you, like, focus in here. Let this sink deep. The way we view our resources change. As an orphan, I view my resources, I've got to hoard them and I need to use them for myself because I'm all I've got. When you realize that you're a son or a daughter, you realize that God is your provider. So you start thinking about your resources differently. You start thinking about them as a steward that you're using your resources for greater purposes. And you think about how they can impact God's kingdom and others, right? It changes the way you view your resources. It changes the way that you view serving. As Christians, we're called to serve. We believe saved people serve people, right? But you can serve from an orphan spirit. And you can serve, and the meaning behind your service is personal achievement to impress God, yourself, or others, How often is this the case in relationships where we're serving, but we're really serving in order to impress ourselves or in order to be noticed or in order for someone else to see us or for something to be reciprocated? We do it in the church. You can serve, but you can serve for your own glory and your own to impress people. You do it at work as well. But when we realize that we're we're adopted, We stop living from that place and we begin to serve from a place of gratitude to God and an overflow of love. An overflow of love. That one right there will transform a marriage. That one right there will transform a church. That one right there will transform a workplace. That one right there will transform a city if we let it sink deep in that way. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, uh, fasting, reading the scripture. From an orphan spirit, you can do them, but your vision is I'm trying to earn something. I'm trying to pray in this way so that I can earn God doing what I want him to do, right? Earning. But if you live from the place of adoption, you're living from the place of abiding, not earning. Meaning I want to be connected to who God has made me to be. I want to be connected to his love. And so I look at scripture and prayer and fasting and all of those spiritual disciplines as ways to remain, to use the words of Jesus, remain in the vine and to be aware of my connection to him. My connection to him is deeper than my awareness of it, but the spiritual disciplines help me abide in what Christ has done for me and who he is to me. It transformed the way that you work. 
So when you go into to work tomorrow, most of us go into a job. If you go into a job with an orphan spirit, you're there to make a name and a life for yourself, right? It's about you getting ahead, you getting yours. But if you'll go into work with a spirit of a son or a daughter, you realize you're there to cultivate God's kingdom. And wherever he has you, you have power to release the kingdom of God, the atmosphere, the values of the kingdom of God in the way that you work. Transformation. Okay, last ones that I want to show you, and there's a more extended list. I try to distill it, but I can share with you the full thing sometime. Relationships. From an orphan spirit, relationships are competitive and codependent, right? We're, in, we're friends with people or we're in a group, but it's kind of jockeying for a position or who can be really the inner circle or how does that work? We're competitive or we're codependent. We just have to like attach our lives to this person because we're just feeling very, very insecure. But when we live in the place of a son or daughter, when we've adopted into the family of God and we let that be our filter, we're able to have mutual healthy relationships, So if you look at your life and you're like, man, all I feel is I have toxic relationships around me, I would encourage you that the Lord has more for you in the area of letting adoption sink deep. And he wants to give you healthy and mutual relationships. When someone brings something to us, a fault, when it's obvious that we've made a mistake, if you come to that with an orphan spirit, finding that out is crushing because your identity is on the line. You're just crushed. You'll be defensive in your response because this just cannot be true. But if you come at it from a place of being a son or daughter, you're able to be open. You're able to be honest. You're able to take responsibility and even be vulnerable because you realize your identity and your standing is not on the line before your heavenly father. So you can actually change. Again, married people in here, people that hope to be married someday. Woo, this one will transform your family and so many other things as well. Authority. From an orphan spirit, authority is a source of pain and you're mistrusting. Anybody just naturally mistrusting of authority, right? It, it's, we're living from an orphan spirit. But when we live in a place of being a son or daughter, authority is seen as a source of protection for us and it's designed to help us flourish. It doesn't always work out that way, but we have a fundamentally different experience or awareness of the purpose of godly authority in our lives. That's for our protection and our flourishing. The future, I love this one. As an orphan, you fight for what you can get. You're on your own. As a son or daughter, you realize that your heavenly father has an inheritance for you that's going to be released and enjoyed. I want to look at the future from the lens of an inheritance. That's amazing, right? And so what I'm hoping uh, for you today is that as we're here, that you would let these words sink deep within you. That Jesus went to the cross for you. That he chose to go to Jerusalem to demonstrate his love for you and for me. That that love brings us into his family and makes us new and completely transforms our lives as we, over time, let it sink deep and remake who we are into the people that God's made us to be. And if you'll take this and let it sink deep, it will transform your relationship with God. It will cause you to grow into the, into the person that God designed you to be, the best version of yourself. And it will transform our world. 
It will shake a city and shape a city. It will transform a nation and the nations of the earth, and earth will look more like heaven if we take all this to heart and let it reshape us. So I want to invite you to stand as we close. As you think about the cross this week, I want you to remember that it's a demonstration of God's love for you. Regardless of your feelings this week, regardless of your circumstances this week, regardless of what goes on or doesn't go on, I want you to know that you're deeply loved and you have a place to stand because of the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to take communion as a way to engage with this even at a deeper level. The officiants are going to come forward. They will have the bread and the cup, the elements, and as the worship team leads us, you can come forward and receive of those, return to your seat, and then in your time, at your time, prayerfully, I'd encourage you to take it and to remember what Christ has done for you. Before we go there, though, I wanted to offer an opportunity for anyone that's here today that you're hearing all this and you're like, you know, I don't even know that I have really believed Jesus, that I've, that I've come into his family, that I never put my trust in him. I've never said, Jesus, you're the king of my life. You're the Lord of my life. I receive your love for me. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity today to receive Jesus. We live in a broken world. That brokenness is shaped by sin. It's, it's without, it's in the news every day, but it's also within us. But God has so much more for us, and he's designed us to have a full life in him. And he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that you and I could experience that new life, that we could experience forgiveness and reconciliation with God, that we could experience the transformation that we learned about today. And the way that we step into that, like we learned from John chapter one, is through faith, through putting our trust in Jesus. And so if you're here today and that's you, I wanna just ask everyone to bow your head for a moment. And to close your eyes just to give people an opportunity to respond. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in just a moment because I want to pray with you. We're not going to call you up on stage or put your name on a skyscraper somewhere. Just want to pray with you. So if that's you, if you would raise your hand or maybe it's just been a long time. You've been out of the church. You're trying to make your way back. I want you to know your heavenly father runs down the road for you. So if that's you, just go ahead and raise your hand. Awesome. Praise God. Uh, Let's pray together. I'd like for all of us to pray uh, with me, uh, if you will. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for going to the cross and demonstrating God's love for me. I believe in you. I receive you. And I receive the rights to become a child of God. I want to follow you all of my days. Amen. Amen. All right. When you're ready, you can come forward and receive communion. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child.
I'm new. 